I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call him a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. I'm searching for phrases to sing your praises. I need to tell someone. It's soon after midnight, and my day has just begun. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, the freewheeling Rob Kelly. And joining us this week to talk about Soon After Midnight, the second track from 2012's Tempest, is fellow Bobcat Stanley Sheehan. Hi, Stan. Hey, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for being here. Really great to be here. I, you have a fantastic show, and uh, I can't say I've listened to all of it, but I've listened to a great deal, <laughs> and it's, it's one of my favorites. So, Well, thank you. It's not a prerequisite that you listen to every single episode. we got a, got a lot <laughs> of episodes at this point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, well, okay. Well, since then, I mean, you're familiar with the show, so you know how we're going to start. Before we start talking about Soon After Midnight, i got to ask you, how did you become a fan of Bob? You know, I, I've never heard anybody give this answer on your show, but I'm sure it's true of a lot of people. The YouTube suggestion algorithm used to be <laughs> it used to be so much better than it is now. Now it seems like it just takes you to like something that's like it's like a hidden ad or Joe Rogan or like a children's <laughs> video that has gore in it. Um, <laughs> just something disturbing. But I used to um, in college, I would do a lot of work like on the public computers that they had. And I would listen to Irish music while I was like typing or whatever. And so I would listen to like, oh, Rosha de Baja Balia, um, like by the rising of the moon, by the rising of. And if I forgot to cue something, it would just play, uh, I think, Bob Dylan's Carolyn Hester sessions. The one the ones with um, the death of Emmett Till, Roland John, like not from Tempest, but Roland John. Mm-hmm. And um, and that was that was really how I got into it. It was it was something I've always been listening to since I was a kid because it's like a thing your dad puts on in the car. But for me, the difficulty was the, like the icon ness of Bob. And so that, uh, those sessions were so out of left field. I'd never heard anything like that before from him. They were songs that, uh, were not in the cultural firmament in any sense. And so I think it gave me an understanding of him as a, as an artist rather than just like the Mona Lisa or something like that. And there's also the, uh, that Chimes of Freedom album. It's just a collection of like 80 different covers of, of his, you know, songs. And, uh, and I would listen to all of those back when I didn't think he had a good voice. And so <laughs> I really, I really understand both sides of why people don't like Bob. I, I used to not like his voice. I used to think he was just like, I don't know, the Rolling Stones or Mona Lisa or something like that. But now I feel like a real connection to him because I've heard all this stuff that isn't in the cultural firmament. It's just around. And so I feel like I ran into that stuff the way that, you know, you might run into somebody who came out in 2020. That's amazing. So a YouTube algorithm actually did something good. That's great. <laughs> for once. For once. <laughs> for once. That's wonderful. So, okay. So once it, once it started doing that, how long did it take you to jump from, all right, well, now I'm going to start buying albums and buying songs and, and whatnot? Buying would be a strong word for me. Um, back when I was uh, in high school, I would download a lot of music uh, illegally. <laughs> obtaining. Uh, Let's use the word ob- obtaining. I would, then. Yes, I would obtain a lot of music. And uh, somehow I, I ended up having a lot of Bob Dylan on my iPod just because I would say, oh, well, I like this song. Let's download the whole album. Um, and so I've had Tempest for a long time. I think I listened to Tempest more than any other album by Bob period. Hmm. I've always really loved that album. I, today, I think it's my favorite one. Um, wow. Wow. I love Tempest. I love Tempest. I, high praise. We, could, we can get into this later, but I, I like it a lot better than uh, Rough and Rowdy Ways, actually. This time, but, uh, but I really love Tempest. So yeah, it, it, took, it took a really long time for me, I got to say, because there, was, um, there were a lot of different aspects of Bob that I would get into separately and then sort of move on to something else. Like I had a, a phase where I was listening to the original Blood on the Tracks album because somebody like posted that on some forum and I was like, oh my God, what's this? And then uh, Hezekiah Jones, I heard out of nowhere, Black Cross. And that song is one of the few things that can make me weep just on command. Billy, one, four, and seven. I mean, just stuff like that. Like <laughs> um, just one after another. And eventually I, it, would, it would started to bother people who I knew because like my girlfriend at the time was, uh, you know, she was always trying to get me to listen to like Mitski stuff, you know, 22 year olds listen to. And I would say, 
you know, that sounds really great, but I'm still, I'm just still listening to Bob Dylan. And she would come into my room and I would be just like playing it on speakers. And she'd be like, still, still this. And it would, <laughs> I, I felt guilty about it for a long time. I was like, I understand I'm listening to this, this old fart, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and I had, and so I, it took me a while to just be loud and proud about it. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's about it. I, I'm not sure I know how you actually started getting into Bob Dylan. Well, uh, yeah, I mentioned I mentioned a couple times across the show was that it, it was through the Wilburys. Uh, it was in the, the huh. I was I was in art school and uh, one of the guy we used to uh, when we all worked on weekends on our projects we kind of lived in a communal. Uh, it wasn't really it was a dorm, but it was a big house, so it wasn't really a dorm room classically the way you would think of it. And we a lot of the rooms were open, and we would all work together, and we would put music on, and one of the guys had the Traveling Wilburys record. You know, I was certainly familiar with the people in it, of course. Uh, I was aware of Bob Dylan as a cultural figure, and I had known some of the songs, but I certainly didn't know him much beyond that. But I noticed that on the Wilburys record, I was like, wow, I seem to like these Dylan ones more than the rest of the songs. And uh-huh. then I started, uh, I, I found some other songs. I was like, I'm liking all this stuff. Why, where, 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 why, why am I just discovering this now? And then I went and bought my first Dylan record, which was Oh Mercy, and I love that. And then boom, I, off I went. And it's, it's, mm-hmm. been that, it's been that way ever since. So that's, okay, so it's, that's, it's interesting. I do want to talk to you about why you love Tempest so much. Not that you have to explain Please. yourself, but, I'm, but I'm, I'm fascinated at that. But I do want to ask you before we even talk about Tempest, have you seen Bob live yet? Are you, are you interested in Bob live yet? Uh, I've seen him three times. Oh, wow. Okay. First yeah, the first time I was, I mean, I'm 24, so I've had a little bit of time, but... Um, <laughs> ah, yes, the old man at 24. <laughs> oh, I mean, I, I compare myself to Bob's age, you know, like, how much time <laughs> do I have before he's gone or physically unable to tour? I mean, he says... Don't say you know, that. Don't say know, that, Stan. I know, I know. Come on. But he says, he says, I'll die before I go senile. And so <laughs> you got to figure it'll be right to the bloody end. Um, not, not there yet, certainly. Not there yet. Absolutely. Not dark yet. Um, yeah. It's soon after midnight. And uh, <laughs> so I've seen him three times. The first time I was uh, 12 and it was like a Jackson Pollock painting. Like it was incomprehensible to me because <laughs> I didn't even, I didn't know any of his songs and I don't think it was one of his better tours. And my dad just took me to this place in Bethel Woods. I have the poster actually in my room and um, it's near, near Woodstock, not, not at Woodstock, but near Woodstock. And it was this open air place. And uh, I, I remember being really amazed by the kinds of people who were there because I'd, I'd only been to one or two other concerts at that age. And the first one was Kiss. And it was terrifying. <laughs> Everybody there, I thought, was was just like this big, burly, like, jerk who wanted to kill me. Um, and Gene Simmons was was frightening. Uh, and they, they almost burned the house down, actually. They, uh, they had some kind of fire set up that they used. And the guy who they had carry it almost dropped it and cut Gene Simmons' head off with a, like a laser beam. And Gene Simmons was holding a sword and so it turned into this thing. But uh, the Bob concert was great. It was open air and there was this woman in front of us who was 60 or 70 with her husband who didn't talk at all. And she turned around and started talking to us and she was very friendly. And at one point she was, she was saying, you know, I really, I, <laughs> I was hoping that this would be indoors so that I could get a little bit of um, hot box from the pot smoke. And I was 12, so I was like, oh my, jeez, <laughs> lady, shouldn't you be in jail? And my dad just laughed. And, uh, and that, was, that was my probably most positive concert memory for about eight or nine years. And, uh, and then I forgot about Bob completely. It was just, it was just this thing, you know, that, Dave, that David Bowie quote? I don't think it's true, but uh, there's an element of truth to it where he says, um, people don't go to see Bob to listen to good music. They do it to make a tribute to his genius. Um, and everybody's just kind of there to be there to pay respects. And uh, at that point, that was what I was doing, or that's what it felt like. And I was I was happy to be there. It just wasn't alive to me. And then I had my phase, you know, in college, I got into Bob like many people do. And uh, and then I saw him for the first time for real in London in 2019. In uh, We were on vacation with my family. And uh, me and my sister went to go see him and Neil Young at that concert in the huge... Uh, I forget what it's even called, but I made a bootleg of it. I took like my phone out, you know, uh, he did a fantastic version of can't wait. Um, it was, it was just filthy. It was amazing. Um, and I, I remember we were, we were pretty close to the stage and we could hear really well, but we couldn't see him. And so I made my sister move with me further back so that I could get a, like a, an, a, just like the tiniest pinprick of a pixel of an image 
of this person. And it was, it was unbelievable. Um, and I remember he, uh, he played like a Rolling Stone at the end. And a lot of the people were there because it was just like this huge festival. Uh, so they weren't really like super big Bob fans, but they were, they were happy to see him. And by the time he played like a Rolling Stone, everybody wanted to do a sing-along. And so he would change up the, the, the tempo every time they started trying to sing along. It's like, uh, you ever see that video of the Turkish guy with the ice cream cone? No, I'm not familiar with that. Okay. So there's a video of a, a kid trying to buy ice cream from a Turkish ice cream man. And he's got this ice cream cone on a long handled stick. And every time the kid goes to grab it, he like twists the ice cream cone upside down or away. And he does all these acrobatics with it. And so like a Rolling Stone was like that. Like he, he would just go like a Rolling Stone. <laughs> and people would look at each other. I can't I sing laughing. along to this. <laughs> yeah. And then the third time was uh, that year. Later that year was at the Beacon. And, uh, and it was just amazing. I went there with my little brother, who's not a Bob fan, and, uh, and my dad. And he came out of it. And he's, he's six years younger than me. So I always think of him as this like digital native like guy who's never been away from like a screen for his whole life. And you know, Bob does this thing where you can't have your phone out in the shows. Right. And so it was, I think, incredibly immersive for him. And I was more... I mean, Lenny, Lenny Bruce blew me away when he did that. I felt like crying. Uh, that was actually the first show of yours I ever listened to was the Lenny Bruce episode. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, I was just like, whoa, cut off any babies' heads. Um, <laughs> and uh, so we, we came out of that, and, uh, and he was like, whoa, that was cool. I have no idea how much time that took. Um, it was only like an hour, but yeah, it felt like entering, it, it felt like we were in Scarlet Town or something like that. You know, like we were in the world of, uh, soon after midnight, of just like sort of timelessness and darkness. Bob um, loves to stop time. That's a big thing for him is stopping yeah. time, time out of mind, stopping it. So that's a, that's a marvelous compliment that he, that he paid without even re- really realizing it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I, I didn't, you know, go out of my way to explain what I felt about what he just said, but I was just, I was overjoyed. Yeah, actually, speaking of time out of mind, my because I downloaded, I, I will, I acquired this music in uh, modes that were not exactly, you know, to live outside the law, you must be honest. Um, and so I have all these albums on my iPod, but a lot of them are scrambled. So different songs are in the wrong place. Certain albums are combined and some of them have covers flipped. So the cover for Tempest on my iPod has always been Time Out of Mind. And, and so I've always thought of those two as, as connected or something like that. And uh, yeah, they're not that different to me. Uh, <laughs> are you planning on seeing Bob uh, in, in this upcoming tour that he's now that we know that he's hitting the road again? Oh, yes. I, I, I have tickets for the Beacon and I very rashly offered one to somebody last night. I really shouldn't have offered it to. I was, I was, at, a, I was at a bar playing Scrabble. And uh, I ran into a guy who was a Dylan fan and um, my dad didn't, doesn't want to go because for some reason he's just not, he's not in the mood to see Dylan this year. And, uh, and I was kind of frustrated with him because I was like, what are you, come on, come on. If Shakespeare was in town, you know, as you say on one of these shows, <laughs> wouldn't you go see Shakespeare, you know, even if he's just croaking the words. Um, and my dad actually has gone to see Gordon Lightfoot, but for whatever reason, he's not, not for Dylan. And so I just offered them to this like older guy I met playing Scrabble. And uh, I, I just uh, might end up going with him. So okay, <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to it. I, I even if even if I have to go with this guy, Dylan fans are all pretty much wonderful people. So That's, do you have plans? <laughs> yes. Oh yeah. Well, I have my tickets uh, purchased. For, we'll, we'll be seeing him in in Philadelphia. I've mentioned on other episodes that I have. Uh, it's not been exclusive, but I generally go to see Bob with my my best friend Dan, who I went to art school with. And uh, we, we've been seeing Bob for 25 years now together. And so uh, we're going again uh, in, mm-hmm. in November. I'm really looking forward. This will be my 26th show, I believe. So um, <sighs> oh, it's not, hey, compared to some people that have been on the show, that's a, not, not a lot. Oh, that's another how many, topic. How many years I've been a, a fan of Bob. But I, I generally, I don't know. I'm not one of those people that needs to go. First of all, I mean, there's some finances involved. But I'm just not somebody that needs to go to see like 13 shows. I just, that's. To me, it's, I, you know, everybody's different, but to me, it would be a little less special if I saw 13 Dylan shows in a two-month period. Uh, to me, it's like, all right, I'm going to go this time, and this is the time we're going to have, and I'm looking, I'm very much looking forward to it. And my, I will say this now, my, my pal Dan is uh, trying to browbeat me into uh, getting some Pod Dylan sweatshirts made, and he wants to wear them 
So anyone oh. who sees them at the show will oh. know they can come up to us. I'm kind of against that because I just feel like it's a little much. But mm-hmm. it's uh, there's going to be four of us. It's going to be me, my fiance, my friend Dan, and and his partner. And mm-hmm. all four of us, he's like, we should all four wear Pod Dylan sweatshirts. And I'm I'm still on the fence about that. But we'll we'll see. If you see it's four like you're people, going to a baseball game. If you see two men and two women wearing everybody, if you're uh, at the Met in Philadelphia on November 29th, and you see two men and two women wearing Pod Dylan sweatshirts, I guess that's going to be us. So you can know that. So. Uh, so anyway, so was the was the tour announced between your last show and this show? Uh, yeah, basically. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Huh. Um, there will there will be by the time people hear this, there would have been another episode that has come out, and I mention it then. And that by the time we're recording this, that show has not come out yet. It's again, it's uh, time is stopping here when we're recording. quantum physics. But yes, quantum. Uh, but yes, uh, but you know, it it is kind of amazing how fast it all fell together. I mean, it was like. Bob makes the, like there was rumors for like a couple of days. Right. He's touring. I think people were hearing things. And then it mm-hmm. was like, bang, BobDone.com. Here's the tour. And they're starting next month. And you can get tickets tomorrow. It was like, wow. Like, you know, it was all, yeah. I mean, obviously not put together fast. I'm sure they were putting it together for months. But I'm still amazed at Team Dylan's ability to keep its powder dry. When it comes mm-hmm. to leaking stuff, stuff just doesn't. That's an amazing phrase, by the way. Well, I didn't make it up, but I mean, it's, okay. it's, again, and maybe I'm not pursuing these rumors, so maybe other people knew this stuff ahead of me and I, I wasn't aware of it, but it's, this stuff just generally doesn't leak out that much, which is mm-hmm. kind of amazing, you know? I mean, you, you hear rumors about, oh, he's maybe recording, but you never hear anything conclusive. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, bang, here's a record. You're like, mm-hmm. wow. So he must have some incredibly loyal people working for him uh, and or people who know that if they do leak something, they're going to get fired. So they don't yeah. do it. But I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's pretty remarkable. I mean, I wish the government ran as well as team Dylan uh, runs things. So, all right, well, that's cool. I'm said, I'm sure you'll, you'll enjoy the show when it, when it comes around. So, so let's talk about Tempest slash soon after midnight, before we talk Jeez. to we'll talk about the song. What, what is it about this record? Why do you love this one? So, I mean, believe me, I love this record, but why do you love it? The best of all of them, as you say. I, partly it has to do with uh, what you just mentioned, Team Dylan's uh, keeping their powder dry. I, Dylan has a real sense of ceremony of um, all of the, the, the accoutrement that go along with art, like the cover of the book, you know, so to speak. Like, you know that, that sound in before certain movies? It feels like you're entering an archway when you go through a lot of his albums. You start them <laughs> with this, like Rainy Day Woman is like an incredible, just like, you're in a you're in like a New Orleans jazz band going down the street kind of thing, and uh, and Duquesne Whistle is very much like that for me. And he, yeah, I think he structured this album incredibly well. There's a, a unbelievable variety of songs, and still they all manage to exist in this in this world that it's always felt like his songs have taken place in, which is the world sort of. I mean, if if Time Out of Mind is like the is a sort of a bluesy dark later Dylan. Tempest is sort of, uh, I mean, it's, it's very rock and roll, but the, the influences that it wears on its sleeve are very um, child ballads, sort of just folk, basically, like Scottish, English, Irish mythology. And so, yeah, I think one of the things I really like about it is the, the sense of um, seriousness and, uh, and uh, ceremony that it has about it. And just sonically, it's, it's a really cool counterpart, I think, to, to Blonde on Blonde, because he always says, he wanted that wild, thin Mercury sound, thin, wild right. Mercury sound. And Tempest to me, I always, I always thought when I thought like thin, wild Mercury, okay, so what's a, what's a fat sound? Like thin, what is fat? And so I would Google that and what would come up would be uh, guys playing the tuba, Fats Domino, like just jazz guys from the 20s going, uh, but I, you know, what would it sound like for Dylan to do a fat sound? And that's what this is for me. They're just like crunchy guitars, the whole sound of the album is is something that is so I don't think it's I don't think it's as celebrated as it should be. I've looked up a million different pieces of writing about this album and nobody can seem to describe it well. Um, and I can't either. So, you know, it is what it is. But uh, but I've always really loved the sound of it. And um, I think the lyrics are, are wonderful. The violence uh, people people seem to I don't want to just criticize people's reactions to this album because, you know, it means to you what it means to you. But uh, people always seem to say that 
starting around this time, he got really violent in his lyrics and his music videos. And, uh, and it was people's memory of him for a long time because he didn't release any albums after this until Rough and Rowdy Ways. And, uh, and he was playing Pain Blood at every single concert. Uh, <laughs> I met a guy, he was like a professor who, who loves Bob Dylan. His name is Stephen Rings. Um, I don't want to dox him if, if that should be taken out of the show. Uh, perhaps it should. But he gives lectures on Bob Dylan. When, the, when he won the Nobel Prize Award, he had something ready to go like that. And, uh, and even he was like, that song is bloodthirsty, man. <laughs> I don't like that thing. Um, and I don't understand why Bob likes it so much. And uh, to me, all of the violence of that album has to do with the fact that he's 71 and he's a very still religious man. And it, it has a lot of like joie, joie de vivre to it. Like you're, you're feeling violent at 71. And yeah, I think a lot of the death in, in it, it been, it's a long discussion, but it's kind of metaphorical. Like a lot of it is, you know, I pay in blood, but not my own. On the one hand, sounds like he's killing someone. On the other hand, that's, uh, that's what Christians believe, you know? Mm. They, they were paid for in blood, but it was the blood of Christ. Um, and I'm not particularly religious, but, uh, but that kind of thing is, is very, I think, resonant in general about uh, just the sense of the, the violence of life, whether or not, and, and a lot of people have sort of a subdued experience of life, um, and not in a bad way, just people in America feel very safe um, most of the time. Yeah. Um, certainly they, they like to compare themselves or a lot of people I know compare themselves to like people in like other countries or, or other times when things were so much more dangerous and it's not necessarily true, but I think it's a sense that people have. And, uh, and Dylan doesn't really have that sense or, or in this album, he sort of brings out the like violence sort of puts into relief. Uh, it's, it's sort of a trite cliche, but, uh, but the value of life, like the, the Titanic song, all different people from all different walks of life suddenly having to have this moment of, uh, I'm dying. Oh my God. And so, yeah, the violence never put me off. I really loved it. Yeah. I mean, I could talk about this album all day, so I don't want to <laughs> take up the whole show talking about it. Well, no, do, no, do no, you, no. How do you I'm feel fascinated. about that? No, no, no. I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated. Okay. By it. I mean, the idea of the violence, I, I mean, just rolling through the songs in my head. Yeah. I think Every single song on Tempest has got some indication of violence, as far as I can yeah. think of. Like, literally every song. Uh, I mean, probably uh, the most gentle is probably Roll On, John, and that opens with violence. <laughs> the assassination, with of, John the assassination of John Lennon. But, I mean, yeah. if, if not every song where somebody gets it, it's close. Tin Angel has got violence. Scarlet Town has got violence. Certainly this song does. Duquesne Whistle. I like what you said about the ceremony. I do agree that I think a lot of Dylan records are kind of like old timey movies that have those, uh, in, not the intermissions, the, the introductions with like the, the, uh, like the instrumental music, you know, the mm -hmm. way move, old movies used to start that way. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I remember, you know, I used to take some of my uh, nephews and nieces to like older films when they would show them in repertory settings and you know they would these movies would open with like an orchestra playing for three minutes and they would be like what is this you know like well that's how movies used to start back in the 50s you know it's like uh -huh. this kind of thing but i mean especially with duquesne whistle we've got that it feels like an old victrola starting up you know mm -hmm. and, and you're almost you can almost picture curtains parting as bob is like okay here's the record everybody here's tempest and you're like okay oh i'm gonna be ready to so no i mean I think this is a great record. It I of of his 21st century releases, which is amazing. I love that you referred to Time Out of Mind as Old Bob, which of course we all thought of it as Old Bob because it was At the time. Yeah. And that was still that's 24 years ago at this point. Uh it seems insane, but uh but yeah, I mean of of his 21st century records, um this is probably this was my second favorite if I have to list them. This is I think Rough and Rowdy Ways is kind of leapfrogged at this point but i think it's a great record uh i think it's an it's an absolutely great record i love every i not I mean i love every song on it but i love most of the songs on it and i like the rest of them so i think it's a really solid record and yeah the the i that's an interesting idea that the the idea that violence is in in every coin is it can is give you on every turn and yeah we i mean i don't know i don't think i mean yes i feel safe somewhat here in america in the abstract i do on my daily life i do i don't in a larger sense because i'm really scared about a lot of the things that are going on of course of course um but but uh, you know but yeah my daily existence yeah i do feel pretty safe but then these songs yeah and even a song like this soon after midnight 
which sounds so sweet and so beautiful. And it's got that wonderful doo-wop kind of sound to it. And yet mm-hmm. there is a lot of violence in this song. I'll drag his corpse through the mud. I'll drag his corpse through the mud. I remember the first time I heard that line, because I, you know, I, I like Duquesne Whistle a lot. I, and I was like, oh, that's great. And then I heard this and I thought, oh, this is, this is great. I love this kind of old timey sound. And then I'm trying to make out the words. And then all of a sudden I'll drag his corpse through the mud. And I'm like, mm-hmm. where the hell is that getting into this song? So I do want to talk to you about how all that fits together. But yeah, oh, um, yes. that's really interesting that you, that, that Tempest has worked that much for you. That it's, and again, that's an amazing thing to be able to say about a artist, any artist, that they can produce a work in their 70s uh, after a lifetime of doing so that someone can come along and say, that's my favorite. That is that is such a great thing to be able to say about someone that it's not just, oh, they're old, right? Yeah, I like their new stuff, but their old ones are the best. Yeah. No, you can come mm-hmm. along and say, no, Tempest is my favorite. That's remarkable. And that's, sorry, I don't want to just go on about Tempest. At some point, we got to get to the song. But, uh, oh, actually, first of all, I love I love Soon After Midnight, and it sounds like the kind of song, because I'm always itching, as many Dylan fans are, to introduce Dylan to my friends and family. <laughs> and so I'm always looking for the right song. And when I first listened to Soon After Midnight, I was like, my, my God, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, this is perfect. And then it, you, you get to the violent verses, or the, <laughs> I guess the violent choruses. And, uh, and it's just like, oh, my God, my, my girlfriend's not going to understand the killing floors, man. <laughs> like, can't you just make one that's normal? Um, <laughs> um, yeah, but, uh, and on the subject of him being old, that's one of the things that I really like about this. The soon after midnight, the idea that he's, he's not having a second childhood in his old age. He's having a second uh, puberty. <laughs> like, he's having a second uh, hormonal period of, of just oh, like, violence yeah, and wanting 20- to tear the world down. 21st century Bob is, again, the figure in the songs, not necessarily Bob Dylan himself, but the figure sure, in sure. the song. He's a lusty guy. There's a lot. I mean, aside from the violence, there's a lot of lust and sex going on, mm-hmm. uh, which, again, is, is sort of a remarkable, not to, not to you want to say someone, once they hit a certain age, you know, that, that part of them shuts down because it doesn't. But we don't, we don't think of older people a lot of times in that context. Uh, maybe it's uncomfortable for us to think of people like that, or we, you know, like oh, we don't want to. Yeah, when you're old people, I don't want to think about that. But when sure. you know, Bob, Bob's still a guy like anybody else, you know. And or again, not the man himself, but the characters that he is portraying via these songs. Mm-hmm. Um, and and not, I'm sorry to go down this road a little bit because it's a little bit off topic, but it makes me think That's of okay. it. Is I did a one another one of my shows that I do is called Fade Out, which is a, a movie podcast about the final films of actors and producers and directors and things like that. You can find it here on the net, Fire and Water Network. So anyway, I did an episode, uh, episode two, about Sam Shepard, uh, the actor, who, of course, collaborated with Bob and co-wrote Brownsville Girl and was part of the Rolling Thunder Review, yada, yada, yada. And I, on that episode about Sam Shepard, I was lucky enough to have the producer and director of his final film on. and. Uh, this film, it's called Never Here. It was a thriller and it was a kind of a small budget movie and he's really the only star in it. And I asked the director uh, and, the, and the writer, it was a woman named Camille Tommen. I asked her, how did you get Sam Shepard to mm-hmm. do this movie? And she said, well, part of it was he, well, by the time he did it, he passed away around age 73, 74. So he did it when he was around 71, 72. He, in the early scene in the movie, he has a sex scene. And that was part of the reason he wanted to do it because he had said to her, once he got to a certain age, all he got offered were grandpa parts. Yeah. And then he gets this script and he is still a vital guy who is still doing vital things. And there's other stuff in the movie that he does aside from the sex scene. But part of it was he was like, oh, okay, I'm not just playing crusty grandpa. I'm a guy who's out having sexual relations with somebody. I'm still a vital living, breathing male. And that was part mm-hmm. of the thing that sold him on the movie. And it makes me think of that as like, yeah, that Bob, you know, yeah, Bob's 80 years old, but he's still a guy like everybody else. He's still a, he's still a warm-blooded human. And he's got these things in him that are coming out. And it's, it's, I find it interesting that after, not that his other songs are chased, but for the most part, there's long stretches of, of his work where I'd say that sex is not a, a factor. Relationships, yes, but not so much sex. But in these last couple of records, yeah, oh, holy geez. All of a sudden, mm-hmm. he's, he's really talking a lot about uh, people's physical attributes and what, he, what's, 
how he wants to get involved with that, which is kind of, again, amazing. Yeah. One of the, one of the things I love about it is he's, I, I don't want to attribute anything to him. It's like, I'm talking about God, uh, <laughs> but he seems to really have a sense of the fact that people don't like to think about that kind of thing. And that there's like a lecherousness to it. Like an, yeah. an old person who's, who's horny is a little gross um, to, to, you know, probably younger listeners or something like that. And so he plays this character in the songs of uh, like a lusty old mule, that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> and he takes, he seems to enjoy playing that part. Uh, but it also puts in a relief songs like Soon After Midnight that are, I mean, it, is, it has some violence in it, but it's a very sweet song. Very sweet Absolutely. song. Absolutely. All right. So then let's talk a little bit about uh, Soon After Midnight here. In the second verse, he says, a gal named Honey took my money. She was passing by. It's soon after midnight and the moon is in my eye. My heart is cheerful. It's never fearful. I've been down on the killing floors. I'm in no great hurry. I'm not afraid of your fury. I face stronger, wall, stronger wall, walls than yours. Uh, I mean, again, I love the doo-wop sound of it. The melody of mm-hmm. this is just beautiful. And I love the way he sings it. I love, He has that, um, you can almost see him preparing for the Sinatra records coming up. It's yeah. got that kind of tone to it. Uh, where that when he says, and the moon is in my eye. I mean, the moon in my eye is right out of, a thousand Frank Sinatra songs. And here he is sticking in, in one of his own songs. So what is it? What was it about this song more than some of the others on Tempest that, that really drove you to want to talk about? It? Okay. So, uh, well, one of the things about Tempest that I really like is that it came out in 2012, which was an apocalyptic year at the time. The theme in the air was not, and not in a, not in a sad way. It was in a sort of like the, that movie 2012 came out and, um, and everybody, didn't really think the world was going to end. Of course it wasn't, but, um, but there was, it was just, it was like Halloween for a whole year. And I think this album really, really, in, I don't know, relishes that. Um, and I, I always think of it as, as an amazing thing that he, he dropped this perfect Halloween album on, uh, you know, the, the year of the Mayan calendar tells us the world's going to end. Um, and soon after midnight is sort of along that line. It's, it's, things are already supposed to be over. It was not, it was not dark yet about 20 years ago. Uh, it got dark. It's been dark, and it'll. It's getting darker. It's soon after midnight, and and things are just starting up again. Um, and so that was that was the thing that I really liked about it. It was. I mean, you you speak about um, the fact that he has all this artistic energy, personal energy at the age of seventy one, and uh, and that's that's I think really uh, that that is encapsulated in the phrase "soon after midnight." And my day has just begun. Um, mm. And that's just something that I really like. It's like, uh, you know, rebirth. And uh, the, the doo-wop is just beautiful. It sounds like it could be a, a high school prom. Um, <laughs> and uh, I mean, it's, it's only, only a 71-year-old or an 18-year-old can sing doo-wop. Like, I can't, I can't imagine Dylan at 40, like, doing doo-wop. I'm sure he has. But um, yeah, the only other doo-wop song that I know for certain he's done is Acne with... Uh, I forget who he performs it with, but uh, he's got maybe Rick Von Schmidt going like do 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 wop do 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 wop do 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 wop, um, or no, it's Jack uh, Jack, Jack Elliott, Ramblin' Jack Elliott, yes, going do 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 wop do 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 wop, and and Dylan goes, uh, you found out I got acne, now you won't ask me to the senior prom do 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 wop, um, and then it gets really violent. He says, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna take my shotgun. I got it for my birthday. 22 rifle i'm gonna get my parents because they just don't understand uh, Jeez. and yeah no it's unbelievable um and uh and you could you could sing a doo-wop that way to this song you could go um soon after midnight doo-doo-doo-wop doo-doo-doo-wop and the moon is in my eyes doo-doo-doo-wop and uh and that that violence combined with doo-wop i mean he always finds ways of combining things that seem so obvious in ways that are completely new. And to my mind, doo-wop has never been a violent uh, (laughs) genre, you know, (laughs) like it's, it's just, it's just like four 15 year old crooners going like, baby, I want to take you to the prom. Yeah. Snapping their fingers in, in harmony and stuff. Yeah. But, uh, but I think one of the, one of my favorite things about this song is the, it's like a song about before anything happens. Uh, Like he, he's always talking about, he's going on a date with a fairy queen. And it sounds like the kind of song you could stroll to a date listening to. It's, um, I don't have any citations for the lyrics in this, but what, what I think about when I hear this song is 
being in love with something before anything even happens. I'm searching for phrases to sing your praises. I need to tell someone soon after midnight, my day has just begun. It, it almost sounds like it could be he's talking to the muse or something like that, or it could be somebody who he's interested in. And uh, anyway, the, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of violence emotionally in, in love. And I think he has a really strong sense of that just from his, I mean, personal history. I don't know anything about that, but, you know, uh, but in this song, I think he really infuses uh, the kind of bravery that you need to have to be willing to go out on a date. That's, that's what I really like about it. Ah, all right. So, okay. I have so much to say to that, but first I do want to point out, he does have at least one other doo-wop song that I can think of, okay. which is off of the uh, Traveling Wilburys volume three, the seven deadly sins, which is a doo-wop, totally a doo-wop uh-huh. song. Now, you could argue he was doing that under the aegis of Boo Wilbury or sure. Lucky Wilbury. And maybe in 1990, the Bob Dylan of the 1990s would not have been comfortable doing a doo-wop song on one of his own records, but he could do it on a, on a Wilbury's record because there's a little more a little more joking around on there. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe the Bob Dylan of, of now, of 2012, when he does Tempest, he's you know out of Fs to give kind of at that point. And so, you know, I'll, if I want to do a doo-wop song, I will. So there is that. It is amazing to me that that was your read on this song, which I think is perfectly valid. Every read of this, every read of every Bob Dylan song is valid because it's your read. You know, there is no, there is no right or wrong read to it. And that's one of the reasons I love the work so much is that it is so interpretive. It it can be interpreted so many ways by so many different people. So I'm fascinated that that was your take on this song. Cause to me, (laughs) I mean, you know, my take on this song was from a very early point on that this is a guy who has been out all night carousing and he is now staggering home after midnight huh. with his with his the woman who's he's supposedly supposed to be loyal to mm-hmm. and he's woken her up and now he's realized that he has been out all night drinking carousing with with hookers spending all of his money and just being uh-huh. a general cad. And now he's home and he is trying his best to butter up the woman to forgive him for what huh. he's done. That's my take. That was my take on this That's song. perfect. That's perfect. And one of the, the, the lines, the song goes on, is Charlotte's a harlot, dresses in scarlet, Mary mm-hmm. dresses in green. It's soon after midnight. I've got a date with a fairy queen. Now, of course, the song bops back and forth between time tenses, which are, you know, all Bob Dylan songs do for the most part. But mm-hmm. the, the bit about they chirp and they chatter. What does it matter? They're lying there dying in their blood. Two time and slim. Who's ever heard of him? I'll drag his corpse through the mud. That to me was the key in, into my understanding of this song. When he's saying two timing slim, who's ever heard of him? He's talking mm-hmm. about himself. He's saying to the woman who knows he's been out cheating on her. No, 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 that, no, I, yeah. that, I'll never do that again. Uh-huh. That, that's two timing slim. That's the old me. I'll drag his corpse through the mud. Uh-huh. He's dead. No, no, no. I'm here with you. Trust me. I'm loyal to you. It's now or never more than ever. When I met you, I didn't think you would do it soon after midnight. I don't want nobody but you. So he is doing his best to butter up this woman after doing a bunch of stuff where he's hanging out with Charlotte, the harlot and Mary who's dressed in green. And you know, that, that to me is the song. It's about a guy who is staggering home after midnight. He's drunk, smells like cigarettes. He spent all his money gambling. He probably has lipstick on his collar and he's trying to get this woman to kind of like forgive him one last time. That to me is what this song is. And the tension of it is this kind of bad behavior married with this incredibly sweet melody. That mm-hmm. to me is why this song is so durable and, and also because it's so short. I mean, it's like a three minutes and change. It's, it's over before you know it. That's true. That really is true. I was listening to it walking around the neighborhood earlier today and I always found myself, I, I didn't think to put it on repeat. And so I was always just frustrated going into my pocket. Like, come on, come on. <laughs> um, that's, that's hilarious because I, I still have the exact opposite read, but I, <laughs> I, I feel like, I mean, one of the things he does so well is his, he understands that a song doesn't need to be clear or direct no, no. in any way. Um, and that that isn't a bad thing. I mean, he talks in Chronicles about wanting to, he, 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 he's staying in somebody's room. He probably made this up or something, but he's staying in somebody's room and they have all these big books. Uh, I think the guy's name is Ray Gooch. Um, which is a hilarious name. 
Um, and he's looking at all these books and it seems like they're made for bigger people or something like that. Like they're for giants to read. There's no, <laughs> no time for anybody to read stuff that big. Um, and he's looking around at the world and he says, you know, you could, you could condense it all into a song or a verse if you got it right. And so one of the things I've always used as sort of like a heuristic for understanding Dylan is that he tries to condense the whole world into a song. And so that's not going to be direct or clear or interpretive. And he says some stuff in the sixties, like uh, the new songs I'm writing, like in the mid sixties, uh, the new songs I'm writing, one line has the whole content of one of those folk songs that I was writing. And, uh, and I mean, Tangled Up in Blue and, you know, all that. He, he always shifts the I and the we and the he and the she and the they. And so, yeah, it's, it's really almost like, a, like an equation that you plug yourself into or something. It's just so open. Um, but, it, it, sorry. It invites you in and you bring a lot of your own personal experience to whatever this given song is. Yeah. And so when I, when I hear Two Time and Slim, my interpretation of that is that he he's thinking of himself a long time ago when he was a different person and he's um it's sort of like in precious angel when he says uh uh precious angel under the sun how was i to know you would be the one to show me i was blinded to show me i was gone or wrong how weak was the foundation i'm standing upon and uh and it's kind of he's he's still pretty religious there's a lot of religiousness in this album and i think i think of that when i hear this song because it's it's that song is sort of i mean very on its wrist on its on its sleeve about um his change of perspective he used to be not irreligious but certainly not the evangelical he was uh for a couple of years and then or at least in song in song and then he he meets this woman in the song and becomes he sees the light and he he changes his mind and so when i hear soon after midnight what i think of is somebody who's who's has a new commitment and he keeps saying i don't want nobody but you and of course in your reading completely different meaning hmm. but uh but what i hear is he's he's thinking wistfully about his old self uh and he passes people in the street and he doesn't even really feel he doesn't feel any for anything for them except this sort of like uh i know this i'm always looking for an excuse to use this word agape it's like a, a godlike love of people who you don't even really respect or like sometimes people who hate you and he like he insults charlotte the harlot and of course, that's something you would do to, you know, somebody who you're trying to convince doesn't mean anything to you. Yeah, when I, when I hear him listing all those people who took his money and somebody who's a harlot and somebody who dresses in green, what I hear is um, people who, he, they, they've hurt him, but he doesn't particularly care hmm. because he's found this, this new person. And Two Time and Slim is, I, I mean, it's self-explanatory. It's his old self and, and he doesn't care about what he used to be. He cares about what he is now. And I guess our two interpretations aren't that different, really. In terms of that, yeah, that's actually kind of the, the, the sort of dovetail there. I, that's interesting that you are putting more emphasis on the midnight portion of it, and I'm not so much. But but it is it is an absolutely fair reading because Dylan certainly has used um, midnight, uh, literally the, the, the word midnight, uh, to great effect in some of his songs. I mean, at midnight, all the agents and the superhuman crew Mm-hmm. come out and round up everyone more that knows more than they do. And even not directly midnight, but in visions of Johanna, ain't it just like the night to play tricks when your mind is trying to be so quiet. I mean, and we know from you know, readings that a lot of his records are recorded like in the middle of the night. Yeah. Like 4 literally or something, literally 4am, which is an extraordinary thing. So it's, it's definitely, you definitely get the sense that Dylan finds middle of the night to be a fertile period either for his creativity or just to be present in the world and awake when the rest of the world is asleep. And so, yeah, I mean, it certainly midnight conjures, you know, the witching hour. It has a, it, it certainly has a certain creepy feel to it. Um, that soon after midnight, this is right. And this is in the middle of the night when all these mysterious people come out of the woodwork that weren't around during the daylight. I mean, said this Charlotte or Mary um, again, you know, the gallium honey that took his money. Uh, these are, these are women of the night, uh, in one way or the other. These are not people you see during the day. They're sleeping during the day. And it's mm-hmm. once night falls, then things coming out. So that's interesting. You're putting more of an emphasis on the, on the midnight. And like I said, that's, it's all grist for the mill. You know, it's all fair. And I like that a lot. That's an interesting idea. But I said, once I got this idea, I don't know if you've experienced this, but like once I get an idea in my head of what a Dylan song is about and again not not in the correct sense but in the what it is to me i find it yeah. very hard to shake that 
it's kind of to me it's sort of set in stone a little bit of like oh no that's what it is now maybe i'll read some other interpretation and go oh wow that makes so much more sense than what i was ever thinking mm-hmm. um once i once i got into the idea of oh two time and slim he's talking about himself the re- i sort of backfilled the rest of it to say oh no this is what this guy is he's coming home he's got suspenders on you know he looks like it's like again <laughs> indeterminate it's an indeterminate time period it's you know maybe like the 40s or the 50s and he's coming home to this woman and then but i like you 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 had the same you and i came to the same conclusion in that penultimate verse but then everything else is different and so i like that a lot it's a it's an interesting way of looking at it i can i come at you from left field right now sure okay i want to know what you think of this of this line which appears the same way on his website when i met you i didn't think you would do what could that possibly mean? Uh, when he, well, okay. When he met her for the first time, he thought that she was not going to be enough. He's like, this is not oh, going to be enough. Oh, okay. Okay. I'd never thought of that. Huh. Because when I, I, when I hear it, what I hear is, I didn't think, I didn't know what you were going to do. Okay. All right. And I, I hear it in that precious angel sort of way. Like, I, I didn't know you'd be the one or I didn't know you were going to change my life. But that's fantastic. Okay. <laughs> great, 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 great. I see, and then the other verse where he says, my heart is cheerful, it's never fearful. I've been down on the killing floors. Oh. I'm, in no, I'm in no great hurry. I'm not afraid of your fury. By the way, he tries to rhyme hurry and fury, which don't rhyme. And, uh, <laughs> but he, he manages to kind of slur it so it, so it makes sense. I face stronger, stronger war, walls than yours. I, I keep tripping up on that line. I feel like he's home. And this woman is mad at him and he knows it, but he's like, I face stronger walls than yours. I'm going to get, I'm going to wear you down because you know, you love me, even though I smell like Charlotte's perfume (laughs) and all my, my, all the, all the money, the rent money is gone because I spent it on hookers and booze. I, I, I've, I felt I've been down on the killing floors. I face worse than this. So I know you're going to forgive me. To me, it's, it's got that, He's got that that twinkle in his voice, in his eye slash voice, uh, and this guy that you're like, don't don't take him back, but the woman probably will. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny that you. I, I mean, we keep coming back in small ways to to Charlotte the Harlot, uh, who dresses in scarlet, um, <laughs> and I feel like she's a very central character to this song because it's such a, it's it's almost as bad as the violence. Uh, when you hit that, it's like what what like what is this ugly note in this song? He's calling somebody a harlot. And then I, I just thought for the first time earlier today, uh, you know, Scarlet is, is Scarlet Letter, um, color associated with prostitution and harlots, that, that kind of thing uh, in the Bible. And, but it's also the cover of Tempest is, is Scarlet. And it's mm-hmm. a, I think it's, I just looked this up. It's the Palace Athena fountain somewhere. And the face on it is supposed to represent the Moldau River. And I'm sure that doesn't, you don't need to know all these details to to sort of get what the album is showing you, but it's it's an interesting combination of like the heavenly and the this like profane other world of the night, and uh, and yeah, Charlotte the Harlot seems like a very important kind of connection to Scarlet Town and to the hmm. themes of the album as a whole. Scarlet seems like the color of this album. I, I also noticed that Bob, I think, and again, I'm, I haven't been tracking it from song to song, but I feel like in a lot of his songs, he loves introducing triumvirates of women. He drops names of three women. I, I, I think about uh, uh, if you ever go to Houston where he talks about three sisters, you know, the other sister, Nancy, the other sister. Uh, and, and Yeah, I feel like he does that a lot where he introduces three women, which seems to be like, well, what is that? Does that mean something? Why is it three women? Why is it not two women? Why is it not four women? What is it about three that seems to be the sort of magical number? Um, and by the way, again, referring to, it's interesting, referring to someone as a harlot. I mean, in our general parlance, that's a bad thing, but someone being a prostitute, uh, again, the way we think of them today, uh, has a certain negative cast to it. And certainly some people would refer to people in that way and meaning a derogatory manner, but is it inherently bad? I mean, you know what I mean? It's like, well, that there's what's, you know, as in society, yeah, we look down upon it, but is what what's what's wrong? Yeah, with and that? you know, he's he's like, he's... if it's something you want to do, uh, why why is that a bad thing? So maybe it's calling her a harlot. It might be a literal definition, but not necessarily meaning it as a put down. Yeah, he sings that line with a lot of affection. Yeah, yeah, um, 
Yeah, and he, in, I mean, he he can really throw some contempt out in this song. Two Time and Slim is is dead. His corpse is being yeah, dragged, dragged through, the through the mud. Yeah. The way the way that he sings it. But Charlotte the Harlot gets a lot of love from him. Uh, and I've listened to a lot of live versions of this song, and I don't really like any of them as much as the recording on Tempest. I don't know how you feel about that, uh, but he sings it pretty much straight the same way, the Tempest style, the whole time. And so I haven't really noticed any different places of emphasis or lyrical changes. Um, I guess that's that's something different. But what do you I think would, of the live? Sorry. I was shocked to learn when I looked it up how many times this has been performed live. I For some reason... Mm-hmm. I did not think of this would have been one of the ones that was played a lot, but it has been played 416 times Yeah, in seven years. That is an extra, I, my eyebrow like, I was like, what? I mean, I knew that like, uh, you know, Duquesne whistle gets played a lot and pay and blood gets played a lot. Uh, but I mean, I, and, but I was really, really surprised that this song has gotten as many plays as it has. And I did listen to if There's a couple on YouTube that I found. And yeah, yeah, he sings it pretty much like he does on the on the record. And as you say, I didn't notice any great lyrical changes. Uh, yeah, I still prefer the the album version just because I feel like that the the duop melody is more forceful, is more pronounced than in the. Uh, he's more kind of like jazz singing it a little bit in the mm-hmm. live versions, which again I like. But but I you know, the the album one is to me is, is is still sort of my favorite. But I was really surprised that it that it's gotten that many outings, and to me that. I mean, this is not an up-tempo number. It's as dark as right. Pain Blood is. It's an up-tempo song. So you can see why he would be playing it a lot or Duquesne Whistle, uh, you know, or Narrow Way or whatever. But th- I was really surprised it's gotten that much of a, of a live outing. And so he must really enjoy playing it because that's a lot of times in just, in just again, Bob Dylan standards, just a seven-year span. Yeah. Well, it's short. You can fit it right in there. That's um, true. It helps. It's only three minutes and changes. Yeah. And he, he seems to have a really practical sense of like what makes for a good concert song. I was really surprised how much of his greatest songs he just never plays in concert because <laughs> he doesn't think the, or I forget where I read this, that he, that he said it, but um, he just felt that a lot of, a lot of his songs weren't working in concert or he wanted to write new songs that would, that would work in concert. Mm-hmm. Um, and he would pull out the specific ones from each album that, that he thought would be good because some of them just wouldn't work. And, uh, and this one clearly does. Uh, and I'm really happy about it. It's, I really love it. Yeah. I said, it's, it's a terrific song. It's, I, I, I think pain and blood is still sort of my favorite song on the record. Uh, it was the one that, that popped to me the most when I first heard it, but man, this is, this is a song I do not tire of. And again, maybe it is because it is so short and the melody is so, so uh, like lilting and beautiful mm-hmm uh that 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 it just doesn't wear out its welcome or anything but man i mean like i love tin angel but i can't listen to tin angel like every day like mm-hmm. <laughs> oh yeah um, tin angel is actually my least favorite from the whole album yeah i mean some like even like tempest i like tempest but it's like all right i got you know i have 13 minutes to devote to this uh yeah. <laughs> but this is a song that i listen to all the like this is when i put i have all my bob dylan songs on my phone and i just hit shuffle mm-hmm. and they just zip through every time the shuffle lands on this song i play it through i never yeah. skip past this song ever mm-hmm. and again that's something about it. and and it's it's perfectly placed uh the second song and it's the second song in the record so it kind of again it lulls you in a little and it says this wonderful sort of back and forth feel to it and even though you got all these horrible lines about <laughs> killing floors and violence and things like that but that's that's a modern bob song i mean that's just the way it, the way it goes right now so um yeah. so is there anything else you want to say about soon after midnight as we wrap up here uh the main thing was i wanted to ask you what you thought of bobby fuller's new shade of blue which this song the music is pretty much direct from from that and it's it's to me, it's a much worse song. I don't know. It's it's just I I don't know. He doesn't he he takes a lot of melodies, but every once in a while, there's a song where it's like this is a direct rip, um, <laughs> and this is one of those. It's like uh like uh, uh Billy the Kid Empson's uh the one on uh False Prophet on, yeah, on yep. the new the new album. Yep. And uh, and this is sort of like that. It's like a similar like three and a half minute song with an incredibly tight instrumentation and, and melody, and it's just taken from what I think is a far inferior song but i i'm interested in the relationship between the two of them because he obviously likes bobby fuller i i'm only vaguely familiar with with that uh i, I hadn't heard about it even until i had read somewhere that they, they said oh the melody is taken from it yeah i uh-huh. 
I have yet to reconcile in my head how I feel about some of the stuff that he does, some of the stuff where he pilfers things. because And not because I have a problem with it uh, so much, is that my what I get, what I find troubling is that when someone has done that to him, he has not been as gracious. Sure, sure, sure. That's yeah. the part where I'm like, well, no, wait a minute. Why is it okay for you to take a song, take a melody from a song, take a, you know, take a, take a song and take a melody, uh, steal the melody for Someday Baby and turn it into your own song and give yourself songwriting credit. But then when, say, uh, Hootie and the Blowfish, you know, quote, idiot yeah. wind in only want to be with you then they get like a slap with the lawsuit that's yeah that makes me j- and you know i don't know how much of it is him how much of it is his record company i don't know that's that's the kind of thing and that's going back to something that has come up occasionally here and there on the show and and came up recently with some news about bob and his personal life is that you know you know you do your best to separate the art from the artist uh this show to me celebrates the art not so much the man now, mm-hmm. on a certain level, I'm celebrating the man because it's all coming from this person. And I like to think that the man himself is a good guy, but he's not perfect like anybody else. He does things that I probably would be like, oh, I don't know about that. So when I hear about stuff like that, that some stuff gets taken from, from lesser famous people to whom if they got co-writing song credit on a Bob Dylan song, it might be life-changing. Mm-hmm. In terms of their lifestyle, their finances, or whatever, and then, but Bob is not as generous about that. Even though, by his own admission, he steals from people left and right. Um, he's been doing it since his first album, for God's sakes, mm-hmm. and he's still doing it now, sixty years later. So, yeah, that's just something that I have just not been able to reconcile in my head. I'm just like, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it. I don't love it, but does it stop me from enjoying Soon After Midnight? That I know that the melody was taken from another song. No, it doesn't. So, no. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, oh my goodness. Yeah, that's well, all I got. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty good, Stan. So, well, thank you so much for coming on. I very much appreciate it. I, I've been wanting to talk about some Tempest songs for a little while. So, this is just great that we got to cover uh, this song, especially again, one of my favorites. So, thank you so much for, for coming on. Thank you for having me. It was a wonderful time. Really great. I've, uh, I've loved this show for a while. So, it's surreal to be, to be on. <laughs> I feel like when, uh, when, when Dylan met Elvis. <laughs> yeah yes it's just like that so uh why don't you tell people where they can find you out on the internet okay so i'm not exactly on the internet but there's a website uh nycjr.com i i write some music reviews for the new york city jazz record i do some features for them every once in a while and uh there you can find a couple different things i've done under a different name most most prominently and it's probably the easiest to find uh an interview with archie shep but um but Otherwise, I'm not really uh, on the internet. Uh, you can find me in real life, uh, but I'm not going to give you my address. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's about it. All right. Well, just look up Blind Boy Grunt, everybody, and you'll, you'll find Stan. So, all right, before we wrap up here, though, I do have to ask you one last thing. So, you know you're going to go see Bob. You've got the tickets. You're going with this strange person. You don't know what's going to happen. But mm-hmm. somehow, Bob, even though you're not on the internet, Stan, Bob finds you. And he reaches out to you and he says, all right, Stan, at the show that I'm going to do for you, what do you want to hear me open with? What do you want to hear me One song. One song. Yeah. I knew this was coming. Uh, And even still, I couldn't decide. Uh, So I think think Born in Time, I would love to hear Born in Time. Because the, the main thing that I've been thinking about for the last, I mean, the hiatus of his touring is just, uh, and I know there's, you know, there's been a pretty good reason for him to stop touring. Um, and for everybody to kind of change their lives the way they have, but, uh, is, is just lost time, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it feels like everybody went to jail for a year and no, you know, nothing that bad, but, uh, but no. <laughs> just like the coming, coming out of it, the reflections that I've been having or coming out of it, quote unquote, uh, the reflections I've been having have been just about time, what it means to live in time, to have no choice, uh, you know, what you do with it. Uh, and that's born in time to me. To me, my meaning is it's like sort of an elegy for having to live in time and die and, uh, you know, not asked to be born, that kind of thing. And so, yeah, that's that's what I'd like to hear. Um, that's a great choice. That's not a song he's played much. So that would that would be a real treat if he decided to whip that one out live. Yeah. That would yeah. be pretty amazing. So all right, I well. really 
I really wonder what his what his new additions are going to be. Oh man, it's just the, when the the first show that he plays uh, is obviously going to set the template for what you're going to hear after that. I mean, there will be some changes because he changes songs in different slots, but for the most part, whatever the set list is on that first date is going to generally be the set list that where everybody's going to be hearing. Mm-hmm. And that's people are, man, we are going to, people are going to be dissecting that. Oof, boy. Cause yeah. <laughs> you're going to be like, how many rough and rowdy way songs? How many new songs? What, what is he singing covers? What's he doing? What, what old song, what old chestnut is he pulling out that he hasn't sung? What, which is the, uh, what's the Lenny Bruce of this tour? Yeah. Yeah. We're going to mm-hmm. be, fascinated to find out you could really make some money in the vegas or something if they you could cover such bets so uh anyway <laughs> we'll yeah, stand. This, this this first that first concert what i've been thinking is that it's just going to be him and then a thousand people bootlegging it oh oh man just yeah. oh. everybody everybody in the audience but yeah no the the uh the uh, the phones will be recording big time on that that first show. There's, there's no doubt about that. So, well, again, Stan, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. It was great talking to you. Um, okay, everybody. Of course, you can find back episodes of this show on our website, FineWaterPodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on any podcatcher of your choice. And if you want to support the Fine Water Podcast Network, please go to patreoncom podcast. There you can unlock various rewards, one of which is to be name checked on a show of your choice. So, big thanks to Robert Ward, Steve Cronin, Max Hutzel, Sebastian Krug. George Doherty and Joaquin Meckel for their support of Pod Dylan. I very much appreciate it. That's going to do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will see you later. Bye. Do you hear, monster? If I should take a displeasure against you, look you. Thou wert but a lost monster. Good my lord, give me thy favour, Stew. Be patient, for the prize I'll bring thee to shall hoodwink this mischance. Therefore, speak softly. All's hushed as midnight yet.